You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. Welcome to Sweet Talk, all things maple. I'm Adam Wilde, co-director of the Cornell Maple Program. Join me from the sugar house of the Arnott Forest as he scrambles to get started for the 2023 maple season is my colleague and fellow co-director of the Cornell Maple Program, Aaron Whiteman. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Adam. The 2023 maple season is finally here and we're busy getting everything up and running. How are things at the Eline Forest? Fortunately, it has been slightly colder up here, but you know we're quickly trying to get ready for the coming maple season. You know, we're finalizing those last tubing replacements and repairs, and I'm planning to actually start tapping our trees this week. Are all your trees tapped? Well, the crew is in the woods running the drills and swinging the hammers as I sit here in the recording studio. We're about half tapped, and we hope to be finished in another week or so. Speaking of tapping, that is actually our topic for today's podcast. Yes, proper tapping techniques are crucial to maximizing sap yields. It seems like such a simple practice, but there really is a lot to consider from tapping bits to the type of spouts you use. Yeah, exactly. You know, I thought it would be a good time of the year to remind folks of those best practices to keep in mind as we hurry to get all of our trees tapped. And here to share his recommendations on tapping and discuss research updates is Dr. Tim Perkins. Dr. Tim Perkins is director of the University of Vermont's Proctor Maple Research Center and has arguably researched tapping practices more than any current researcher or producer. Well, I'm always excited to hear what Dr. Perkins has to say, so let's have a listen. Today, our guest is Dr. Tim Perkins, director of the University of Vermont's Proctor Maple Research Center. Tim, welcome to Sweet Talk. Thank you for having me. So I brought you on today to discuss different tapping practices and maple spouts, you know, because you've done a lot of fantastic research on different spouts, tap hole size, tap hole depth, etc. But to start out, you know, there are a lot of important steps in maple production. Would you agree that proper tapping practices rank pretty high in the list of procedures, you know, sugar maker should be confident with? It really is a critical step in the entire process and one that if it's not done properly, can can really ruin your season. So we try to make sure that people understand that the decisions they make and the practices that they use in tapping are really the, the thing that sets the stage for a successful season. What do you think would be one of the most important things to keep in mind when tapping? Oh, there's, there's a number of things, uh, anywhere from you know, selecting trees of the proper size and health but also, it really comes down to drilling a, a good tap hole. And a good tap hole is one that is round and not oval at all. So you need to have a good stable position when you're drilling. Drill with a good maple bit, not a regular drill bit, but a maple tapping bit with one in and out movement. And make sure that the drill is held in a steady position, just moving it in and out, not up and down. So you need to need to have a good footing, well-stabilized, and, and not move that drill around other than in and out when you're tapping the tree. You hit on a point there talking about a maple tapping bit. How important is that, or what's the difference? You know, I have a toolbox with a drawer filled with all kinds of different drill bits. You know, Why can't I just reach into that, that toolbox and grab just a standard 516th drill bit? Well, you can, it just won't get you as good a result. Uh, A regular bit for wood use is not made to drill rapidly and especially not made to remove the chips quickly. And so 
typically when you drill with that type of bit, it's it's an in and out movement to make sure you clear the chips or or slow drilling. With maples tapping, you want to have a tap hole that is drilled fairly quickly. So the maple bits are made to be more aggressive, made to clean out the chips very, very quickly and produce a nice clean hole. Do you have a recommendation for how many tap holes you can drill on a standard maple tapping bit before you should replace it? Right. We tend to go with about 2,000 to 2,500 taps before we replace a bit. At the end of the year, unless a bit has never been used, we tend to retire them. Between days that we're tapping, we will make sure we store the bit back in its plastic sleeve. We, we don't want it kicking around inside a inside a bag or a pouch somewhere. It, it's always protected. If it ever hits another tool, then we are going to switch bits and not use that bit again. It needs to be really sharp, really clean, and they do wear during use. So 2,000 to 2,500 tap holes is about all you can expect before you should either replace or sharpen if you have the ability to set the sharpening correctly. Yeah, because, I mean, maple wood, especially sugar maple, is a pretty hard, dense wood that can eventually dull those blades, right? It very much is. A question I've gotten before, sometimes when I'm discussing kind of tap hole sanitation with producers, and sometimes I'll get the question of, you know, what about between tap holes? So you drill a tree and you're going to move your next tap hole. What about sanitizing that drill bit so that, you know, you're making sure you're not adding other microbes potentially into that new tap hole? You know, it's a common practice sometimes in horticulture when you're pruning, especially a plant that has disease, that you sanitize your clippers. I don't know that there's been a lot of research on sanitizing the bit between each tree. It isn't a practice that we utilize and and it may have some merit, but there are microbes everywhere. And so as soon as you touch that tree with, with the drill bit, um, even if you sanitize it, you've picked up more microbes. And hopefully, as long as you have, you're using a good bit and it's cutting clean and sharply and removing the chips, you're going to remove most of the material. There may be a few microbes that make it into the tap hole, but that really isn't isn't that big a deal. There really is no such thing as sterile tapping or or sterile spouts in in the maple industry people like to talk about it sometimes but we just try to be as clean as we possibly can when we when we tap trees when we're using spouts or tubing but trying to trying to get to the point of sterile is is probably not readily achievable and in theory that maple that you tapped you know as long as you're tapping into clean healthy wood shouldn't have that many microbes or anything that you're picking up and spreading to the next one, right? Like you're probably going to get more from just being in the air from walking from the next one, right? That's correct. We have done some research and there has been other research done in the past looking at cleaning tap holes with various types of sanitizers, everything from Clorox to to other types of sanitizing solutions. And the research is interesting in that it found that sometimes you get really good results doing that. But other times you get really poor results doing that. And we think that's because if you have a really, really clean environment in a tap hole that's that's too clean and you've you've removed all the competition, all the competing populations of microbes, but then something gets in there that turns out to induce tap hole closure or drying really fast, then it's bad. Other times it, it may be something that gets in there quickly that establishes in a tap hole that is more benign, but 
if you happen to get the thing in there that's that's really bad first and there's no other competition to to keep it in check then you can get really poor results by trying to sanitize apples huh that's that's really interesting to hear and that, that makes sense. And I think some of that actual sanitation of the tap hole comes from back when they used to use the, was it the Flowmore tablets, right? The paraformaldehyde tablets. Yeah, to- paraformaldehyde tablets. Or people would squirt a chlorine solution into tap holes uh, thinking that it, that it might help. And sometimes it would and sometimes it absolutely would not. From a food safety standpoint, what would you throw out there as if somebody say, obviously paraformaldehyde tablets should not be used anymore, but if somebody wanted to go squirt chlorine into their tap hole, is that something they could do and still be a food safe? Um, It probably is. It's not really necessary. If you're using good sanitation practices overall, it isn't likely to do you any good and may in fact not help at all. Interesting. I want to go back to something you had mentioned about when drilling a tap hole and the the chips, the, the little shavings, wood shavings that are left behind in that tap hole. Usually because of a good, if you're using a good tapping bit, it removes most of them, but sometimes you get those little kind of pesky lingering chips left behind. Do you recommend trying to remove those? We don't recommend it, although I know some of our people who tap do try to remove those chips if, if they see a lot of them. We tend to try to remove them if we can because we're predominantly in our production woods using check valves. And if those small chips get into the ball area, they could plug it either open or close. So so we do try to remove those. And different different tappers will use different techniques. I've I've heard people using canned air. We tend to just use a small twig and be very careful to just pull out the chips. Going back to kind of the proper tapping techniques too, or what are some of the biggest mistakes that someone can make when tapping? Probably the biggest one is tapping well over their head. It is really difficult, if not impossible, to drill a tap hole straight in and pull the drill straight back out again without without moving it up or down. And so when we look closely at those tap holes, and as you're pulling the drill out and it's still running, you tend to score the top of the tap hole. And that is a place where there is potentially going to be a leak. So you shouldn't really drill any higher than your, your head level or slightly above, but at the same time, you want to make sure you're utilizing as much of the tapping band as you can. But that's probably the, the biggest issue we see, people trying to drill really high over their head and creating oval tap holes and doing it. And when you're saying a leak, you're referring more to a vacuum leak on a vacuum system than a sap leaking out and not coming out the tap hole, correct? That's correct. If you're using vacuum, in particular, if you're using high vacuum, it really doesn't take very much to create a vacuum leak. And that's one way that uh, we found people tend to make leaks. And I think from some of your research that you've done that, you know, when you add vacuum, you know, for every inch of mercury, we increase vacuum, we're increasing production about 5%. Right. The research has shown that on average for each inch of vacuum, you produce an additional 5 to 7% more sap. We did some work on that. I know Cornell and, and Acer Center has, has found the same results. Are there other issues that folks should consider when they're tapping? One would be if you have trees that are very large and been tapped for a long time, the growth rates tend to be fairly slow on those trees, the size of the individual ring. 
So over time, if you're not careful, if your drop lines are maybe too short, you tend to result in cluster tapping. So people who may find themselves in that situation, when they're tapping, they, they hit old tap holes and see stain, may want to consider tapping below the lateral line if they're on vacuum. If, if that is something that they consider and try, uh, you want to make sure two things. You have good vacuum, and you're also using as good a sanitation practices as possible to, to make sure that you're keeping your tap hole as, as productive as it can be. Yeah, that's a good tip. I know that's something that sometimes we do in parts of our woods where we have some older trees that have been tapped for 50-plus years now, and it is hard finding you know good, clean spots. To- right. It's a good idea to, as you're tapping to sort of keep a, an eye on how often you are hitting stain because Hitting stain is is some is just leaving money in the woods. For each amount of stain that you hit, you're losing a percentage of your yield. So you know it. it we sort of liken it to, you know, if you hit stain five percent of the time, you're you're leaving something on the order of fifty cents in the woods. So it's it's akin to walking up to each tree and dropping two quarters next to it every year that you're hitting five percent of stain. That's not just that one tree that you hit stain. That's every tree throughout your sugar bush if you're hitting stain 5% of the time. It really adds up. Yeah. yeah. And that's because you're hitting stain wood. You're not getting good sap wood, so you're, you're dropping sap production, right? Yeah. Stained wood, the, that brown wood, it doesn't have to be punky brown, but just stained wood from um, the old tap hole scar area around the, the tap hole no longer transmit sap. So if you're tapping into that brown wood, there's no sap coming out of it. You may get a little sap from any new growth that is that has happened near that tap hole, but uh, from the stain portion, you're you're not getting any sap coming out at all. So you've essentially just drilled a drilled a dry hole and so your yield is nothing or next to nothing. It's proportional to the amount of stain that you've hit, but uh, avoiding avoiding hitting stain is one of the simple things you can do but it takes a lot of attention when you are tapping to actually make sure that you're not hitting any areas and adapting by using things like longer drop lines or tapping below the lateral to make sure you're not hitting those areas so here's a question for you if i tap a tree and i'm looking at my shavings and 50% of those shavings are nice, clean, white, milky sap, right? But the other 50%, you know, deeper down are that, you know, a little bit darker brown, definitely stained wood. Uh, what do I do? If it's 50% uh, or less of brown wood, we would probably leave it in place and, and just accept the losses. If it's more than 50, and particularly if it's considerably more than 50, then we would probably drill a new tap hole, but it would that tap hole would almost certainly be below the lateral line and as far away from any other tap hole that we could possibly see. So recently you announced a new spout design that you've been developing for a few years. And before we discuss the new spout, what was the premise for coming up with that new spout design? You know, what's what's wrong with the spouts that we have that we've been using for many years? They seem to work, right? So what was the concept behind it? Yeah, the spouts that we currently have are certainly a, a huge improvement over over what we had a generation or two ago. But the, the problem with them is that they, 5 sixteens, quarter inch, or, or somewhere close to that, spouts all have a very long, 
very low taper barrel. And when you put them into the tree, they extend into the tree, the barrel, into the wood about an inch or more. The problem with that is that first inch in the wood has the highest flow rates of sap moving through them and also has the highest sugar content. So that we're we're actually collecting initially from a little deeper portion in the tree. Now, in a long sap run, it wouldn't really matter. We'd be able to pull sap around the spout barrel where it's blocking off the, the wood, and, and the sap would eventually get into the tap hole. But in these shorter runs, particularly in the early part of the season, we, we may only collect sap for a few hours before it stops again. And so we're not collecting sap at as high a flow rate, and we're not collecting the sweetest portion of the sap first. And then also, early in the season, if we just get these partial thaws where the wood may only thaw for an inch deep or so, we may not be collecting any sap because it's it's blocked off. So the thought was, if we could somehow shorten the spout barrel, it would increase the sap flow rate from tap holes and result in sap that was slightly sweeter, and we'd be able to get that sap out faster. So it's really a relationship between the amount of sap that's in the tree, where it is, and how fast we can get it out. And so that's kind of what drove our design to the particular endpoint that we came up with. Neat, yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. So what is the, the new design that you've been working on and have come out with? The two major differences in this spout, which we're, we're calling the barb spout, I don't know what producers will call it, but it's it's a spout that is a standard 5 sixteenths inch spout, but with a shortened barrel so that it doesn't block off as much of the newer wood area. The problem with that is once you shorten the barrel, it becomes less stable in the tap hole because there's less contact there holding in place. So we've put a series of barbs that start out fairly small, but get larger and larger as you as you go towards the outer edge of the spout itself. So the idea is that the first two barbs actually penetrate into the wood when you seat the spout, and that's what grips it in place. The next two to three barbs engage in the bark and hold it in place. And the last barb is very large, and that's mostly to serve as a stop, which makes people not be able to pound the spout in too far, because that's a problem we've seen with the current design of spouts is people just overdriving them. And so this shortened spout barrel with the barbs hold it in place, and then a final stop seems to be, it's what we eventually decided upon and, and have tested over the last several years. That's interesting to hear. What has been your results over the last few years? Well, the first few years, we, we explored a, a number of different designs. And then the third year, we we arrived at the design that we liked, but we weren't exactly sure of what barrel length might be best. So we tried a, a variety of different lengths. And so we tested that for the last three years for a couple of reasons. The test we did last year turned out to be invalid because of cracking micro cracks in the spouts that we made. These are all being machined and, and there was a problem in the machining that caused them to crack. So the, the two previous years that we had tested, one year we saw a 10.8% increase in sap yield. The next year we saw uh, over a 23% increase in sap yield. 
And the difference from one year to the next isn't surprising. The seasons vary a lot. And in particular, they're going to vary on the number of thaws and especially the duration of the thaws. So if you have a season that has a lot of short thaws, then this spout design would perform better. If if you have a season where you have a lot of really long extended thaws, it still would perform better, but not quite as well as it would in a season with shorter thaws. That's interesting to hear. And how much of that increase, you know, so you had 10.8 one year and about 23% increase another year. Of that increase, how much of it was due to increase in sap volume and how much was due to increase in sap sweetness because the sap and those outer rings that you're able to catch now are a little sweeter? It's a little bit of both. Now, the the increase in sap sweetness isn't huge. It's, you know, on the order of a tenth or two bricks sugar increase, but still that, that adds up. And so I would say the majority was likely due to sap yield, and but there was a little additional kick that came in there from the from the additional sugar content of the sap. What about removing the spouts from the trees? They come out hard. <laughs> they come out very <laughs> hard, but that's exactly what they were designed to do, to, to stay in the tree. And, and that's kind of one of the things that led to this, this design as well. We did a survey early on to find out how much spout heaving was an issue for people. And, and it varies uh, from year to year and it varies from place to place. But in general, there were a significant number of people reported that spout heaving was an issue. So this design actually helps with that problem as well. But they do come out very hard. Um, It's so hard that they occasionally will remove pieces of bark with them when you pull them. And so it looks like it's a problem, but we have to keep in mind that bark is dead. So you're not harming any of the living portion of the tree. And to make sure that we weren't damaging the growth portions of the tree, we looked at tapo closure. And tapo closure doesn't seem to vary between this spout and, and our control spouts that we used. Yeah, so it doesn't seem to be damaging some of that, the cambium kind of on there, the internal layer of the bark at all. It doesn't seem to, but you better have a good spout puller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're made to hold tight and, and they do, right? So, that they do. <laughs> yeah. So are these spouts on the market yet? They aren't. Uh, as I said, for the last few years, we've machined them. So they were all individually made on a lathe and... This year, we have had a test mold made, and I just received the actual molded parts yesterday, and they look good. We will be putting them out when we tap, starting in about a month from now, and we have several different experiments that we're planning on doing, and we're, we're sharing these with, with other researchers and extension people and some producers that we work with and hope to get feedback from them on, on what they think about them or, or ways that they could be improved. Yeah, I look forward to testing some of those for you this coming maple season as well and, and see how they Great. perform. So, you know, prior to this spout design, you know, you came out with the, the check valve spout. And so how did it compare creating both of these, you know, creating this new one compared to the check valve spout? And do you foresee combining these two together in the future, potentially? To answer the last part of your question, there's no reason that they couldn't be combined. And I've been asked that question several times that it would really depend upon the maple equipment manufacturers and what they wanted to carry. But there's no no reason why a check valve couldn't be built into this spout design. They're, they're compatible. 
you know, when we first came out with the check valve, it was it was a new thing for us to invent something and test it and help move it to market. So this time we we know a little bit more about that process and we aren't in the role of marketing ourselves. The university has a innovations uh, technology department and and they kind of own whatever we come up with. So they would, if they deem it to be a, a product that is something that might be licensable, they would patent it and then search for licensees who may want to carry the product. And that's kind of where we are now. This particular barb spout and the, the RTs, the new style of fittings that we've come up with, are a little bit different in that we actually had to work with an injection molding company right from an early point because some of the ideas that we came up with, we didn't know enough about the injection molding process to be able to tell whether or not they could actually be manufactured. So we we had to go and actually meet with them and, and speak with them first. So they've been involved involved right from uh, fairly fairly near the beginning. And so we will very likely be working with them if and when any of these products move to market. Yeah, and for our listeners, you know, you mentioned the the arc flow fittings and tees, which you've incorporated into the the new spout as well. And that's the concept that instead of a, a ninety degree or even a, a forty five degree angle coming out of your spout and dropping into your tubing or any T's that you have that it's a curved arc instead of a, a 90 degree angle, correct? Correct. And and that was uh, one of the parts that is difficult. It's it's pretty easy to make a fitting with straight connections and connections that are joined at, at angles, but to actually have a curve incorporated into a into a fitting is considerably more challenging, but doable uh, as it turns out. And and so that's the other portion of this the arc flow fittings we think all all fittings should have an arc as opposed to a especially a right angle or even a 45 or 60 the head loss through a tubing system tends to be better when we have a smooth flow as opposed to a a flow that meets at right angles or some other angle and that's with a vacuum system again, right? That's correct, with a vacuum system. Although the, the concepts would, would be similar in a gravity-only system, we haven't really tested or even designed with that in mind. So when I open up a supply catalog to look at maple spouts, sometimes it can be four pages of all kinds of different spouts. And it can be kind of daunting. Upon closer inspection, you can see, well, maybe there's some different sizes, some different materials. So I guess my question is, help me understand what is the difference between all those different spouts that are in a supply catalog, you know, and are there ones that are better? Are there different materials that I should be considering or other maple producers should consider, you know, given different circumstances? There are several different features that that are available. A simple one is the material itself. So there are nylon spouts that tend to be opaque and have some color to them. And then there are polycarbonate spouts, which tend to be clear, although they can be tinted. What we found is that polycarbonate spouts tend to stick better in the tree. So there's less heaving issue. They're also, because they're clear, tend to have less heating that goes on in the spout itself. So during a hot year may be advantageous. We tend to use polycarbonate in our woods, um, both for those reasons, they stick better and, and there's less heating. But in some woods, if it's a very cold woods, you may want to have a little color in your spouts uh, so that, that they do warm up and thaw out a little faster. 
And nylon also is a material that can be used over many years. So if people are sanitizing the spouts chemically, you can continue to use a nylon spout for many, many years, whereas a polycarbonate spout you have to replace every year. So that's one difference. Another would be the spout size, the diameter, the size of the drill bit that you would use. What you see is that there is a slight curve to yield for the different sizes. So a, a quarter inch spout tends to produce about 10% less sap than a 5 16 inch spout, but a 5 16 inch spout under vacuum will produce really close to a 7 16 inch, the, the former size that was used spout. That's two of the Two of the simple differences after that, we start to get into lots and lots of variations on on the angles that are used or thin wall spouts versus normal spouts and, and then other things that are coming on the market that haven't been tested. And I guess to follow up that statement, I'd say some of these things aren't tested, never really get tested. They're, you know, sometimes marketing is what's driving those differences, but Oftentimes, we don't see a whole lot of research that goes along with those. And you brought up a, a couple of points there that I have questions for. One is, you know, thinking about that different tap hole size, so quarter inch versus five sixteenths, or I think there's even small some that are smaller than a quarter inch. And sometimes those supply catalogs make the claim that they give you the same yield. And so you've seen a little bit less drop. I know I've heard the argument that. In theory, a larger tap hole should give you higher yield, but there's also a higher surface area that could have potential micro leaks. Right. There is a curve that's that we we have a pretty good idea what it looks like. Um, so the smaller spouts you talked about are sort of collectively called micro spouts. They tend to be on the, on the order of five thirty seconds inch diameter. They produce right around sixty percent of what a five sixteenths inch spout produces. The next step up is a quarter inch. They produce about 10% less than a 5 16 inch spout. There are spouts kind of all around that range, so 17 64ths and 19 64ths, and, and they produce a little a little less than a 5 16 as well. But it, it starts getting really close, and producers are never really going to be able to measure that difference. But when we do scientific studies looking at these, we can sort of tease out those small differences. But it takes many years to do that because there is some natural variation from tree to tree and, and we have to we have to look at a variety of factors and try to keep as many things constant as we can except the size of the spout. And and when we do that we do see these very, very small differences that to producers may be negligible. Or the other factor is the smaller spout, even though it produces a smaller yield, also produces a marginally smaller wound. And if that's important to you for one reason or another, then that might be a valid reason for using a spout that's smaller than the 5 sixteenths standard spout. Yeah, so maybe a smaller spout may produce 5 to 10% less sap, but if you, instead of hitting 10% of non-conductive wood, now you're only hitting 5% or 2%, some of those may balance out a little bit more. That's right. That kind of approach of using a smaller spout, drilling shallower tap holes, perhaps longer drop lines uh, will work. It just takes time because there's, there's a lot of factors involved. And if we're only changing something a little bit, it's, it's going to take you know, decades for, for that to even out in terms of the sustainability. Whereas something like tapping the lateral line, you're you're immediately almost doubling the size of your tapping band. So your your sustainability goes goes way up very, very quickly. 
in that case. The other piece you hit on before was the wall thickness of a spouse. So do you have any opinions or even more important, any research data on thickness, you know, the thin wall, do they flex more and create a tighter seal? And then also what about, I've heard some theories on, you know, if you're tapping in really cold weather, so regions that tend to stay a little bit colder, like up here in the Lake Placid, and if you're using a thicker wall spout, there might be more of a potential of creating little hairline cracks that can be micro leaks. Yeah, there, there's a lot that's said about the thin wall spouts. Um, I have never seen any scientific evidence that says one way or another, whether they, they do produce more yield or produce fewer cracks. I think the spouts that are typically used with a sort of standard wall or, or less flexible spout is probably doing about the same as a thin wall spout. And, and it comes down to marketing largely for some of these things. And the maple industry does introduce a lot of new things over the years, but, but many of them are never tested. And, and so producers end up being the, the guinea pigs and sometimes things work out. Sometimes they don't. So we don't know for sure on the thin wall story. I haven't, I haven't seen any evidence that suggests it's any better. In terms of the, the more heavier spouts creating micro leaks, we haven't seen a lot of evidence of that as well. You know, leak checking in, in spouts is, is difficult, but we get better and better over it at doing it over time. And producers need to realize, and many of them do, that trees produce not only sap, but they produce gases during, during a flow period. So just, just because you see a bubble coming out of a tree in, in a spout or in tubing doesn't mean it's a leak. It's only a problem if, if you see a lot of bubbles and they're moving fast. So producers need to just get educated on what to look for in terms of different size leaks in order to understand what's going on in their systems. Any data on, there's an old theory that you, you know, don't tap a tree on a really cold day because you're going to split it. Yeah. We don't tap trees on really cold days because I don't like my tappers to go outside and work in cold weather <laughs> than when it's that cold. I agree, right? <laughs> if it's not good for trees, it's really not good for people. So, so when it gets to be, um, you know, below about 10 degrees wind chill, then I, I make them stay inside, even if they want to go out. So it's more of an issue for the people than it is for the trees. With the, with the new types of tapping bits, as long as you're using a good maple bit, they're made for drilling into frozen wood. And and the spouts aren't creating micro leaks for the most part. If if they are, you're driving them in way too far. So cold weather really isn't an issue for tapping for the most part. Some of that may go back to the old metal spouts, right? If you're driving them in pretty hard with a big, you know, sixteen ounce hammer or something. <laughs> right. You could create problems then. Now one of the one of the things we do frequently get comments on is red maples really smooth bark red maple trees when people tap they can see afterwards maybe in the next summer they see these vertical lines extending above and below the tap hole tim wilmot did some research on that years ago and found out those are very superficial they're only in the bark they don't extend down into the cambium or or into the wood themselves so it's just a reaction of the of the wood of the bark on the tree not the wood that shows that and we don't know for sure why it is red maples tend to do that uh, and sometimes sugar maples but mostly you see it on these smooth barked red maple trees and it's it's more of a cosmetic thing than anything else yeah i'm glad you brought that up because that is a question i've certainly got before and i've noticed that in my woods also 
Yep. Now you've done some several research projects on tap hole depth and even with high vacuum, and it seems that that two inch depth seems to be kind of the the sweet spot for maximizing production, right? Right. It really depends on the technology you're using, but if you're using vacuum and you have good levels of vacuum, going beyond two inches, including the bark, doesn't seem to help much. And it's because of that characteristic that I mentioned earlier, that we have higher flows and better sugar content in shallower wood. And as we get deeper and deeper into the wood, the vessels that are there are less functional. So they're not carrying as much sap or they're plugged up or the sugar in them has has been depleted over many years of runs. So we can go deeper. You're going to get marginally more sap, but not very much. And when you go deeper, you're reducing the sustainability of tapping. Or in other words, you're increasing the percentage of time that you're going to hit stained wood when you do tap. So two inches seems to give a good balance between getting really good yields with vacuum and preserving the sustainability of tapping over the long term. Are there other recommendations a sugar maker should consider when selecting spouts or tapping their trees? <laughs> well, there's a whole lot of them. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and they vary in importance, but probably the best thing producers could do if they, if they have a lot of questions and want to want to do a real deep dig on, on some of these things is check in two different resources. And, and there are lots of resources out there on, on the Cornell webpage, on the Proctor webpage. But the two, the two sites that we like to point to are mapleresearch.org, which has a collection of a lot of more recent maple research on it. And you can go in and search for various uh, topics. And then the other is the new version, the third edition of the North American Maple Syrup Producer's Manual. And that's also available on mapleresearch.org as a free PDF download. But you can also buy a hard copy if you'd prefer that way. And that has all the latest information up, up through 2022. So it's a good resource material if you want to spend your time reading lots and lots of things about maple syrup. Yeah, I'm glad you brought those up. Those are both great resources. And congratulations on finishing updating the, the maple syrup producer manual. I know you put a lot of work into updating that and has a lot of great resources in there. Well, thank you. And it was it was a collective effort of many, many people in the in the maple research and extension world and they were all very generous in contributing to the manual. Well Tim, it was so great to have you here on Sweet Talk. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to testing your new maple spouts. Well thank you and happy that you'll be able to take a look at them and have a great upcoming season. Thank you, Tim. Well, Aaron, there were so many great recommendations and things to consider when tapping. Always informative when talking with Dr. Tim Perkins. You know, he's such a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, Tim always has good wisdom to share. So there was a lot to learn there. And one thing that stood out to me is that you have to do tapping well from start to finish. You know, if you do one part of it wrong, it can negate your efforts. For example, if you make a slightly ovaled hole when you're drilling the hole, it doesn't matter if you have a good spout and you tap it in properly. You're still going to have a vacuum leak because you did that first step wrong. So it's important to pay attention, take your time, be deliberate, and do the whole process correctly. 
Yeah, you're definitely right, Aaron. And I think one thing that can sometimes be tough is when we're out tapping and you're trying to get two or 300 taps in a day, it's easy to kind of forget about all those different factors, right? And you kind of get in this kind of tunnel vision and you're just focused on tapping. And, you know, it's so easy to forget to look up and realize that the tree doesn't even have a canopy, that it's broken out or something like that, right? I've been guilty of that in the past. It's easy to put on the podcast and get in the zone of just tapping and not be really attentive to what you're doing. So that's just something you just have to keep in mind when you're working out there is examine each tree, think about what you're doing and be careful as you go. Yeah. And it takes experience. You know, a lot of these variables we have to make kind of in a split second decision, you know, is this tree healthy enough to continue to tapping? Obviously you can't stand there and look at the tree for 10 minutes because you're not going to get much done in that day. But you still need to slow down, make sure you look up at the canopy, assess to make sure it's a healthy tree, make sure you're tapping into a good spot on that tree that you're not going to be hitting an old tap hole or some kind of other wound within the tree. Yeah, and that, that experience takes time to develop. So that brings up another topic, which is working with your crew. You know, oftentimes, especially in larger operations, we have inexperienced tappers out there in the woods. And mistakes will happen if they are not properly trained. So that's something to put a little effort into is training your crew, checking in with the crew, going out and checking their work after they've done it to see if there are any corrections that need to be made, you know, before they drill six or 7,000 holes wrong. It's good to get them trained up and verify that their work is is being done properly right at the get-go. Yeah, for sure. And I think even, you know, that doesn't even have to be a paid crew member, even if that's your friends or family who are showing up for the day. And it's, It's hard sometimes you just want to get those trees tapped. It can be easy to just give somebody a drill and send them out, but it's really important to spend some time to go over, you know, all these different factors that we've talked about to make sure that those trees are going to be tapped properly or have them follow you and work together for part of the day, at least to make sure that they're competent in what they're going to be doing. That's right. Because at the end of the day, you can have the world's nicest evaporator, great tubing in the woods a good marketplace to sell your syrup. But if you don't tap your trees right, you're going to lose out. Yeah, that's so true. You know, our money is really made in the woods, right? Yep. That tiny little tap hole is where our crop comes from and where our profit is generated. Yep. Yeah. It sounds like there are a lot of nuances to tapping and untapping and other interesting topics that we can discuss. So we'll visit those on future episodes of Sweet Talk, All Things Maple. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk. All Things Maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on All Things Maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.